The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we are in the process of studying the epistle of Galatians. And we have arrived at a very, very important verse in Galatians 2.16, which reads, Nevertheless, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And we have come to that all-important word, justification. This was the banner cry of the great Protestant Reformation, justification by faith alone, faith alone in Christ alone. And what we discover from looking at church history since the Reformation is that this principle is rarely understood. People are usually confused by it. They usually try to add something to faith. And for those of you who have been going to the conference over at uh, North Stonington the last I guess it began yesterday with uh, George Meisinger teaching. And George, I thought, did a great job last night in uh, going through uh, how different groups. He, he, for those of you who weren't there, he had some overheads of some quotations from different groups talking about how people are saved. And they talked about how you were justified by what you did, by your works, ultimately. And he had a quote from Jehovah's Witnesses, and then he had a quote. He didn't tell us who they were at first. Then he had a quote from uh, the Mormons. Then he had other quotes from evangelicals. And what struck me was the similarity between what they said. Because they have lost the concept in, uh, under Lordship Salvation, totally lost the concept of salvation by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is why we are uh, taking the time that we're taking to study through this whole concept of justification. Uh, I felt like George sort of blew my cover last night as he was uh, going through that. For those of you who were there, he spent some time talking about Galatians. Then he spent some time talking about the Gospel of John and certain passages in the Gospel of John. And then he spent some time, and will spend some time, I think, tonight talking about uh, certain passages in James. Now, does that strike home to anybody? And uh, as you should realize is that I have a method to my... Uh, construction of what we are studying in terms of Galatians, John, and James for this very reason is a threefold pincher attack on Lordship Salvation to make sure that we all understand what the gospel is, what grace is, what faith is, and how the spiritual life is related to our so great salvation. So that's why we are taking a lot of time, and, and that's why there's a certain amount of correlation that we will see between these three studies as we progress further and further along. Now, what we see is that we are studying this doctrine of justification. But before we can understand justification, we must understand some foundational concepts, and this relates to the doctrine of imputations. The doctrine of imputations, in turn, rests upon the foundation of the character of God, specifically the integrity of God, which involves three aspects of his character, his perfect righteousness, absolute justice, and immeasurable love. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes or provides, always through the motivated by the love of God and expressed, through the grace of God. Grace is not an attribute of God. It's not part of divine essence. It is an expression of divine essence. It is, in fact, the policy of God towards his creatures. So it is these three aspects of divine essence that we began our study with to understand these fundamental principles, that what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. But the love of God motivated him to provide a solution through the grace of God. And that's the foundation for our salvation. Last week we reviewed that principle and then went to 
Romans 5.12, which reads, Therefore, just as through one man, that would be Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And we began to exegete through this particular verse to understand what exactly it was that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand. And we came down to that therefore, just as through one man, that would be Adam, sin entered into the world, the implication being that there was no sin in, on planet Earth uh, prior to Adam's decision. It was through one man, not the woman, but the man. He is our representative that he is the one, by his decision to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he is the one who opened the door to sin and evil in the human race. One man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Ask the question, what kind of death is this? And when I came to that point, I went to two passages and in a rather cursory manner, went past them, and it raised some questions that I was asked by a few people during the break. So I wanted to come back and just um, look at those passages in a little more detail. Turn with me, so, turn with me to Genesis 2.17. Genesis 2.17 expresses the prohibition in the Garden of Eden. After God created Adam, he devised a test for human volition. Man was created in the image and likeness of God, which means Adam was perfect righteousness. There was no sin in Adam. Therefore, the divine justice was not an issue in the relationship between God and Adam. Adam was plus R. God was plus R. So that justice did not intervene and it was, there was no hindrance to the love of God flowing to man. So love was the point of contact between God and the man in the Garden of Eden. The issue related to divine justice is the issue related to the garden and the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, a couple of things that you should notice about this particular prohibition. First of all, it says, for in the day. So whatever the penalty is for eating of the fruit, it was to occur at the moment that eating occurred. It was not, the prohibition does not envision some delay. The second thing we find is the translation, in New American Standard at least, you shall surely die. Now, it was somewhat popular in the earlier part of this century, through the middle part of this century, to translate this, dying, you will die. The first dying being translated as a participle indicating a process. This would relate then to spiritual death as the way it was taught. And the second death mentioned would be physical death. For those of you who don't know, there are seven different categories of death mentioned in the Scripture, and I'll rehearse those in a few minutes. And the issue is always trying to define just what death is in view in a particular passage. Now, I said last week that that was really an inaccurate way of translating the Hebrew. Now, a number of you have heard that. I grew up hearing that for many years. And one of the reasons, those many of you don't know this, one of the reasons I majored in Hebrew and took four years of Hebrew when I went to Dallas Seminary was because of a lot of issues in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the most significant chapters in the whole Bible. Because if you throw out the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis, you have to throw out the rest of the Bible. Everything else from Genesis 12 on is based upon the veracity of those first 11 chapters. And so if they are uh, symbolic or allegorical or mythological or anything of that nature, then everything else in the Bible is, is fraudulent, is also mythological and not real. So I spent a lot of time studying Hebrew and studying a lot of different problem passages in those, these first 11 chapters of Genesis. 
Now, when you come to this construction in the Hebrew, it looks like this. It's a repetition of the main verb. It is mot and then ta. I want to make sure I get the vowel points right here, tamut. And it is a, these two words, this is M-O-T, and this is T-A-M-U-T. Now, this is just a prefix here. This is the main verb here, which is the Hebrew word for death. Now, this first word in the Hebrew is called an infinitive absolute. And then this is your main verb. It is a cal imperfect. This is a cal is your, your basic stem of, in, in Hebrew. And this is a, you have either have a perfect verb, an imperfect verb, an imperative. This is a, uh, your main verb, and it's an imperfect uh, verb. Now, what ex- how exactly should one translate this? Because it's a repetition of the verb, people translated it at one time like this, dying you will die, to emphasize the repetition of the verb. But that's not what gr- grammars say is the thrust of the infinitive absolute. I think that we should follow a good principle of exegesis here, and that is that whenever you find some kind of construction in the Scripture, you should, and you have a question as to how it should be translated or how it should be handled, it's always good to find parallels somewhere else to see how that is handled there. Now, so I want you to hold your place here and turn to a few chapters over in Genesis, to Genesis 18.10. The reason I'm doing this is that I want you to gain a little confidence in how the translation is read and to understand the underlying text, you know, the, the uh, kind of the philosophy that's dominating seminaries today is it's fine to do your work in Hebrew and Greek when you're in your study as a pastor, but never bring that into the pulpit. That has no place in the pulpit at all because that's just going to intimidate people and scare them and, and make them distrust their Bible. And what you find is these, and I discovered this in seminaries, you would have these great profs who really knew the Greek and the Hebrew, and then you would go here and preach, and it was pretty superficial. And sometimes you knew they disagreed with how the English translation was translated, but it never came across because they wouldn't mention, want to mention the Hebrew or Greek from the pulpit. But I think it's important because it adds credibility to what the pastor communicates. He, if he is trained in Greek and Hebrew, then he should do his work in Greek and Hebrew, and he should not be afraid to admit that he has gone to seminary and studied the original languages so that he can be sure of what God said in the original languages and not rely on some secondhand translation. Well, if we look at Genesis 18.10, we find in the Hebrew a very similar construction. Reading it in the English, it says, And he said, and that is God is the one who is speaking here to Abraham. He has just announced that they would have a son and that would come in the future. And he, that is God, said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So God is announcing to Abraham and Sarah that by the, that time the next year, she would give birth to a son. The clause that we want to look at in the Hebrew is what's translated, surely return to you. Notice the similarity in the English between that and Genesis 2.17, you shall surely die. It's that word surely that adds certainty. What we have here, instead of the verb uh, mut, which is the verb for, for death, we have the, word, the Hebrew word for return. We have shov which is the infinitive absolute followed by the cal imperfect of shov, which is ashuv. So it's, this is S-H-U-V because it doesn't have a, a dogish. If it puts a point in the middle of that letter, then it's a hard B. It's A-S-H-U-V. Now this, as you can see, is the same kind of repetition of the verb. Now, if you were to translate this verse, I, returning, I will return to you, wouldn't make any sense, would it? God is not talking about a pro, two different returnings, is he? He's talking about the fact that at the end of a year, I'm going to return once. And at that time, you will have a child. 
what the point of this type of grammatical construction is, is to show emphasis and certainty. In biblical Hebrew syntax, which is an advanced Hebrew grammar by Bruce Waltke, who used to be the chairman of the Hebrew department at Dallas Seminary and has his Ph.D. in Hebrew from uh, this small school up in Boston called Harvard, and uh, another man named O'Connor, and probably in the evangelical camp there is no Hebrew scholar to surpass Waltke. He used to give exams when, when I, I, fortunately, gratefully, by the grace of God, I arrived at Dallas the year after Dr. Waltke left, and we heard all the horror stories about how you would go into Old Testament introduction classes, and every time you went into your OTI class, you would be given a quiz over the reading that you had for that class. You'd have 30, 35 pages to read in one of the introductory textbooks, and in these textbooks, only about a third to half of the page was text. The rest is all fine print footnotes. And Ryrie had a photographic, me- I mean, Walkie had a photographic memory. At times you'd ask him a question and you could just see him stop and almost see the wheels turn as he would read through a passage and then quote it word for word from Hebrew or Greek or Assyrian or Akkadian or Ugaritic. And he would give quizzes and half these quizzes would have to do with materials that was in the footnotes. And you had to know it cold. It wasn't multiple choice or true or false. You had to be able to give precise answers as to exactly the information in the footnote. Well, according to uh, Dr. Walkey and M. O'Connor, the authors of this syntax book, they state when the verb, and that's our verb dying, to die here, when the main verb makes an assertion, that is when you have an infinitive absolute, says when the verb makes an assertion, the notion of certainty is reinforced. With the imperfect conjugation, that is, when you have an imperfect, cal imperfect here plus the cal infinitive absolute, with the imperfect conjugation, the infinitive absolute often emphasizes that a situation was or is or will take place. The infinitive absolute is an affirmation to intensify the verbal idea. The point of all that is that what this type of construction is used by an author to emphasize the absolute certainty that if under certain conditions, if this happens, then this result will automatically happen and you can count on it. That's the thrust of the grammar. So the point in Genesis 2.17 is that death is the penalty for disobedience to the prohibition. And I think the New American Standard accurately translates that, that on the day that you eat from it, you shall certainly, surely, the New American Standard says, or certainly die. Now we have to ask a very important interpretive question. And that is, what kind of death is this? See, I'm giving you a little insight as to what a pastor needs to go through in the process of understanding what the text is saying. What kind of death is this? Now, there are six different kinds of death in the Scriptures. There's spiritual death, physical death in time when the soul is separated from the physical body. There is temporal or carnal death when the believer is out of fellowship. He is said to be in carnal death or temporal death. He does, his spiritual life is sort of on hold at that point because he's under the control of the sin nature in carnality. There are dead works that are produced by the believer when he is in the status of carnality. Sexual death, such as Abraham when he was 100 years old before he gave birth to Isaac and uh, was unable to function sexually. And the second death, which is the eternal death, eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. So we have to ask the question, if there are seven different kinds of death in the scripture, what kind of death? is being talked about in Genesis 2.17. We know from the consequences. We know from looking at chapter 3 that it must be spiritual death because the immediate result is that in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they immediately tried to solve the problem on their own effort. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then when, in verse 8, when the Lord came to walk in the garden in the cool of the day... The man and his wife hid themselves. Separation from God. So the penalty that is mentioned in 2.17 is spiritual death. 
everything else is the consequence of spiritual death. Spiritual death is the penalty for Adam's sin in the garden. All the other kinds of death, physical death in time, positional death, that is, I, I skipped that one earlier, positional death is the death of the, uh, uh, when the believer trusts in Christ as his Savior, he is identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross through the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, and that is called positional death. By being in Christ, he is identified with the death of Christ on the cross. So that is a result. Obviously, Christ had to go to the cross to die because of sin, pay the penalty for sin. So physical death in time, positional death, temporal death, dead work, sexual death, and the second death are all the consequences of living in a fallen universe. So spiritual death, the result of spiritual death is phenomenal. Adam sinned and what happened? In the natural realm, in the realm of nature, you had all kinds of consequences. Think about it. When God originally created all of the animals, they were gramnivorous. They were, not, they were herbivores. They ate grass. They were not carnivores. There was no death on the planet at that time. One animal was not out there killing another animal. Tyrannosaurus rex was originally created as a grass eater. But as a result of sin coming into the cosmos... The animals are transformed into adversaries, and you have the development of carnivores. So it affects the animal, sin affects the animal kingdom. There are no thorns and thistles in the plant kingdom. You have no cacti. But as a result of Adam's sin, you have the degeneration of the plant kingdom, and you have the development of thorns and thistles and all kinds of other things that are the result of Adam's original sin. So nature is affected. Uh, man is affected in terms of his spiritual relationship. We said that already. But man's physical health is affected. The universe is uh, the way man uh, covers or uh, makes a living is affected because now it is through the sweat of his brow. You have all the aspects of the curse, uh, pain in childbirth. All these other things are ramifications of the spiritual death itself. So spiritual death is the penalty for Adam's original sin, and everything else are consequences of that penalty. So we must think clearly and precisely and see that physical death is the consequence or result of spiritual death, but it is spiritual death that is in view in Genesis 2.17. John, thank you. Now, a second question that was raised that I had two or three people ask me about is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's turn over there. The subject is what kind of death is mentioned in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I believe, is talking about spiritual death. But 1 Corinthians 15 is often seen as a parallel passage to Romans 5, especially the verse... Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, usually this is taken as spiritual death. And I believe that's what you have been taught in the past, is that this is spiritual death. But this doesn't really work. And I flew through this passage fairly rapidly last week, and I want to back up and show you why this cannot be spiritual death in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go back to verse 12, and just slowly read through the passage. This whole chapter is a defense of the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. We must understand that the issue here is physical, bodily resurrection. Verse 12. Now, Christ is preached that he has been, what? Raised from the, let's add the word to make sure we're clear here, physically dead. This isn't spiritual death, is it? He wasn't raised from the spiritually dead. He was raised from the physically dead. He was, has been raised from physical death. How do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the physically dead? But if there is no resurrection of the physically dead, not even Christ has been raised. What's our subject? Physical death. Every time the word death appears so far, it's physical death. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. And the point there is that if there is no resurrection, then Christ did not have the approval of God the Father for his death on the cross. There is no salvation whatsoever if Christ is still in the grave. Verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the what? Physically dead. Can't be spiritually dead. The physically dead are not raised. For if the physically dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, now that's a euphemism, For the believer, always when it refers to the believer, it never talks about death. It talks about falling asleep because it's temporary. The instant you die physically, your soul is separated from the body, and instantly you are face-to-face with the Lord. You have an interim body of some kind. We know that because of the story of Lazarus and the rich man, in I believe it's in Luke 17, because the the rich man who is in uh, torments says to Abraham, who's across the way in paradise, come and put some water on my tongue. So obviously there's some sort of interim body there if he's got a tongue and he has physical, uh, a physical desire for water. There's an interim body. So he, it says here, then those who also have fallen asleep, that is physically died in Christ, have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are, not, uh, we are of all men most to be pitied. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the what? Physically dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep, that is, believers who are physically dead. For since by a man came death. Now, what usually happens is all of a sudden people want to switch to spiritual death. But there's nothing in the passage to indicate that. It's a non sequitur. It is logically fallacious to shift categories here. For since by a man came physical death, it was a consequence of spiritual death. For since by a man, that is Adam, came physical death, By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. What's the comparison here? The second part of the comparison is resurrection from the physically dead. For this to make sense, the first part of the comparison has to be physical death. Otherwise, you're comparing apples with oranges. Both sides of the equation have to be of the same category in order for there to be a valid point made. For as in Adam, all die physically. Because of our position in Adam... We will all die physically. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive physically. See, that's his point in this whole chapter, is that the believer, by virtue of his being in Christ, is going to have resurrection from the dead. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's not talking about spiritual death and being spiritually regenerated. He's talking about the fact that every believer, every human being is going to die physically, but in Christ we have victory over that. For example, look at verse 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. What kind of death is that? It's physical death. It's not spiritual death. And then you go down to the end of the chapter, and down in verse uh, 51 and following, it talks about the believer's resurrection, when the perishable will put on imperishable and the mortal immortality in verse 53. And death is swallowed up in victory. What kind of victory is this? Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our victory over physical death. So the entire subject of 1 Corinthians 15 is physical death, not spiritual death. But physical death is the consequence of spiritual death. Now, why is that important? I, just, I can't stress this enough. I remember uh, hearing this over and again from Dr. Ryrie when I was in seminary, is that death, physical death, is the consequence, the result of spiritual death. Let's put it up here this way. Spiritual death produces physical death. So that means there could not be physical death anywhere in the entire spectrum of life from animal life. We haven't had time to really study, but if you look at Genesis 1, there is a distinction. The tree huggers and environmental folks today don't want to draw a distinction between plant life and animal life. 
but the Bible draws a precise distinction between plant life and animal life. Animal life and human life are of the same category. They are of different levels. Plant life is of a totally different category. It is not sentient life. So you don't have to worry about taking the life of a plant. You don't have to agonize over that. Um, Spiritual death results in physical death. So if you have any physical death anywhere in the animal kingdom, from the lowest trilobite all the way up to man, prior to Adam's making that decision in the garden, then physical death would not be the result of spiritual death, would it? What does that mean? The implication for that relates to the whole theory of evolution. The theory of evolution is predicated on the mechanism of death. You look at the entire spectrum in in historical geology, you look at the entire spectrum and you have fossils in every different layer, and what caused those fossils? What caused those fossils is the death of the animal that created that fossil. Now, if evolution were right, or any form of evolution, whether it's theistic evolution or progressive evolution or or any of the other blends or compromises that are attempted, they all have man coming along at the end, finally. But before man evolves or develops or God finally creates him, you have all kinds of death taking place. If any death, any physical death occurs prior to Adam's making the decision to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then it is not the result of spiritual death. That is a very important point because what that tells us is that the entire theory of evolution is a religious attack on the very foundation of Christianity. Because if physical death and spiritual death are not the consequence and penalty of sin then it was not necessary for Christ to go to the cross to die as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. And if it wasn't necessary, then God wasted his time because spiritual death, our physical death, if physical death isn't the result of a sinful act of disobedience by a man, then physical death is normal. Physical death is the way things ought to be. It's the ideal condition. And what the Bible says is physical death is not the ideal condition. Physical death is abnormal. It was not how God designed the universe. Adam was not intended to die physically. Physical death is the consequence of spiritual death. And so every time that you know of someone who dies, the first thing that ought to come into your mind is we're living in a fallen world. It is a visible reminder day in and day out of the penalty of sin. And that is why when Jesus goes to the grave to raise, before he raises Lazarus from the grave, we see that little two-word verse in the English, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Was he grieving over the loss of Lazarus? That's absurd. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knew that in five minutes he's going to command Lazarus to walk out of that grave, and Lazarus is going to walk out of that grave. So Jesus weeping had nothing whatsoever to do with Lazarus' physical death. The verse preceding it tells us why Jesus wept. As he walked up, he saw the grieving crowds. Why are they grieving? Because they've experienced a loss. They've gone through the loss of a loved one who has died physically as a result of sin in the universe. And Jesus has compassion on man because of the pain and the misery of the human condition as a consequence of sin. And so Jesus weeps because of his compassion for fallen man. It has nothing to do with Lazarus. So physical death is a reminder we see there, a reminder of the depravity of man and the lost condition of man. Okay. Back to Romans chapter 5. I hope that those two explanations have um, resolved any questions, any other questions that anybody might have on those particular verses. Romans 5.12 is the basis for understanding imputation. Last time we looked at that, we saw that 
that prior to the fall, love was God's point of contact with man. But at the fall, at the moment that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, at that instant, something happened to the relationship between God and man. Remember what, what we've learned about the integrity of God. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So when Adam sinned, he lost his perfect righteousness. So the righteousness of God had to reject Adam instantly, and the result was his condemnation. Now, Adam's sin is critical and foundational to understanding your salvation, and this relates to the doctrine of imputation. So let's look at this doctrine. We began last time by giving a definition. Point number one in terms of definition is that the English noun comes from the Latin imputari, which means to reckon, to attribute, to ascribe, to charge to one's account. You have charges imputed to your credit card account every time you use it, so you should be used to having imputations. We saw how Paul used the word in that sense in Philemon 1.18 where he told uh, Philemon that if Onesimus uh, had any debts uh, charged against him or had wronged Ones- or Philemon in any way, uh, Paul said, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. He assumed the legal responsibility for Onesimus's debt. Onesimus was a slave that had escaped from Philemon. And so there we see that the root concept of imputation has to do with assuming responsibility and legal accountability. Several words are used for for imputation in the Greek. Having a little problem here with the uh, overhead. Set that up there. Greek word is logizomai. The word we find here, this is a word it's related to thinking. It's a thought word, a word related to cognition. And it means to, in, in a thinking sense, it means to attribute something or reckon something to be true. It was also used in accounting, and it had to do with um, reckoning something, charging something to someone's account, or imputing something to someone. It is a used in the uh, Greek of the... Septuagint, the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, to translate the Greek, the Hebrew word chashav, C-H-A-S-S-S-H-A-V. And we find an example of that in Leviticus 7.18 when talking about someone who violated, uh, or excuse me, someone who was... Uh, uh, had violated the regulation in relationship to a peace offering. Leviticus 7.18 says, So if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering should ever be eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, and it shall not be imputed or reckoned to his benefit. In other words, there would be no real application of the benefit of that sacrifice to the individual if he violated any of the regulations related to the sacrifice. Another uh, phrase or another verse that uses this is in uh, <coughs> Leviticus 17:4, talking about someone who, uh, in an inappropriate way, sacrificed or slaughtered a lamb or goat, a sacrificial animal, outside the camp instead of inside the tabernacle. He was his blood guiltiness was to be reckoned or imputed to that man. So this just substantiates the use of the word. When we finished up last week, we came down to point number one was the imputare. Point number two had to do with the Greek and Hebrew words, legizomai and chashav. Point number three were the Old Testament passages in Leviticus 7 and Leviticus 17. And now we come to point number four, that there are three factors involved in an imputation. The three factors are, first of all, the source of the imputation. And the source is God himself. The second factor in imputation is the nature of the imputation, and that is what is being imputed. What exactly is it that is being charged to someone's account? And the third factor in imputation is the recipient 
of imputation. Where is the imputation going? Who is receiving it? Those are the three factors. Now, point number five, there are two categories of imputation. Now, this goes back. These are standard theological categories. If you go back and read very standard theologies back through several centuries, you'll discover these are consistent categories used in the literature. There are real imputations and there are judicial imputations. Two categories, real and judicial. So let's give a definition of each. Real imputations. Real imputations are where the justice of God imputes something that has an affinity, agreement, or correspondence to its object. Okay? In a real imputation, the key word to remember is correspondence. That God is imputing X to Y, and there is something in X and Y that has affinity or correspondence. There is a similarity there. There is a home in Y for X that is fitting. There is something there that will gel together. There is correspondence. That which is imputed by God has an affinity, an agreement, or correspondence in what it is imputed to. In judicial imputations, the justice of God imputes something that is not, that where there is no correspondence or agreement between what is imputed and the object to which it is imputed. For example, there are, this would be point, further development of point five, under judicial imputations, there are the imputations of our personal sins to Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, there is no affinity or agreement or correspondence between our personal sins and Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is perfect righteousness. So, when he is on the cross, Jesus Christ is plus R. What is being imputed to him are our sins, minus R. There's no agreement between the two. There's no correspondence. This is just an act of God judicially. Another category of judicial imputation is here we are, sinners, minus R, and when we put our faith and trust in Christ alone, His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. Once again, there's no agreement or affinity between His perfect righteousness and its home in us because we are minus R. That is why that is called a judicial imputation. Now, in a real imputation, there is correspondence between X and Y. And so, when Y is us, and we are minus R, because we have a sin nature, and what is being imputed is Adam's original sin, then there is correspondence between Adam's original sin and our sin nature because it was Adam's original sin that created or generated the first sin nature. So that's the difference between a real and a judicial imputation. Now, there are two judicial imputations. And we have looked at both of them. The two judicial imputations are our personal sins to Jesus Christ on the cross. The second is His perfect righteousness to the believer at the point of salvation. Remember, every believer is born condemned in three categories. First of all, he has a sin nature. Secondly, he has Adam's original sin imputed to that sin nature. And third, he then commits personal sin. Remember, we'll hit this again as we develop our subject. Remember, you are born at that instant you emerge from the womb. You have a sin nature because that is transmitted genetically and is involved in every chromosome of every cell in your body. To that sin nature is imputed Adam's original sin. As a result of that, you are born physically alive and spiritually dead. 
Adam's original sin is imputed to your sin nature, and as a result of that, you will commit personal sins. But you are a sinner because you are born with a sin nature that has Adam's original sin committed, uh, imputed to it, and not because you commit personal sins. You sin because you're a sinner. You do not, uh, you are not a sinner because you've committed personal sins. And that's a very important distinction to understand. You sin because you are a sinner. By nature, you are a sinner before you ever commit the first personal sin. You are not a sinner because you have committed personal sin. In terms of real imputation, so those are the two judicial imputations. In terms of real imputations, there are five. First of all, there is the imputation of human life to the soul. There is affinity between the two. Uh, Human life to the soul. Secondly, Adam's original sin to the sin nature. We've already discussed that, that when Adam sinned, that generated the first sin nature, which was passed down genetically from one member of the human race through the male to to the next generation. Third real imputation is eternal life to the human spirit. At the point of salvation, God imputes to your, creates a human spirit. God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit in you. Holy Spirit here creates in you a human spirit, and at that instant, simultaneously, God the Father imputes His very own eternal life to your human spirit. That's the third real imputation. There is affinity between and, and correspondence between eternal life and your human spirit. Fourth, blessings in time to perfect righteousness. God imputes to your perfect righteousness, which is imputed to you from Christ, blessings in time. And then fifth, blessings in eternity to the resurrection body. Now, I just wanted to give those to you so you would have those in your notes. We're not going to discuss most of those. The only three imputations that we're concerned with in terms of our study are the judicial, are the real imputation of Adam's original sin to the sin nature and the two judicial imputations of our personal sins to Christ on the cross and his perfect righteousness to the believer at the point of salvation. So point number six, and our last point in terms of introduction to imputation, is that these imputations form the basis for God's plan for the human race. The plan of God begins at human birth, which is the imputation, when the imputation of human life to the soul takes place. The plan of God begins then, not at the new birth or regeneration. That's when the spiritual life plan begins. The, the plan of God begins at human birth and results in God's glory in eternity future by every person who lives. Blessings or assignment to eternal condemnation. So the imputations are the basis for understanding the whole plan of God. Now, we're not going to develop that point because that's not germane to our study. So let's begin by looking at these imputations. How do they take place? Well, just because it is a background for the others, we will start with the first one, the first real imputation, just briefly, which is human life to the soul. The imputation of human life to the soul. Point number one, the imputation of human life to the soul and the imputation of Adam's original sin occur simultaneously. They occur at the same time. The imputation of human life to the soul and the imputation of Adam's original sin occur simultaneously in time. Logically, they occur in sequence, but in actual chronology, they are simultaneous. Human life is imputed logically before the imputation of Adam's original sin. So that's why we're studying it first. Chronologically, they occur simultaneously. To understand the imputation of human life, we have to understand that the Bible distinguishes between three categories of life. This is point two. Three categories of life in the Bible. The first is biological life. Biological life begins for us in the womb. In the womb, the fetus is mother 
dependent. The fetus is not independent. The fetus has a number of reactions, a number of reflexes that are biologically oriented and do not necessarily indicate that a soul is present. The opposite is true. At death, certain physical things continue. Hair continues to grow physical. Uh, your, your fingernails continue to grow. A number of other biological functions continue to take place. There's still life within the cell structure, biological life within the cell structure, even though the soul is no longer at home. So it's even clear after death there's a distinction between soul life and biological life, and prior to birth there is a distinction between soul life and biological life. In Genesis 2-7 we see the development of biological life. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust from the ground. He took the chemicals in the ground and formed the physical body of man, which is his biological life. And then we see the second category, which is soul life. Soul life. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then man became a living soul. Then you have full human life. So biological life plus soul life equals human life. The critical word here is the Hebrew, neshama. N-E-S-H-E-M-A-H. And it's translated in a number of passages, breath or breath of life. Job says in Job 33.4, very important passage for understanding this whole concept. Job says, the breath of God has created me. So he's talking not about the biological life, which is created through procreation between the male and the female. That is physical life or biological life. He is talking about his soul, the real Job. He says, the breath of God, Neshama, has created me. Even the breath of the Omnipotent One gives life. So when the fetus emerges from the womb and takes that first breath, that is when God, following the pattern established with Adam in the garden, God breathes the soul into the biological life. And at that instant of physical birth, you have human life. Biological life plus soul life then equals full human life. Now, traditionally, and I want to get, I, I don't have time to do all the exegesis. We have a book by Pastor Theme out on the rack in the foyer called The Origin of Human Life, which is an excellent detailed analysis of all the passages of Scripture that relate to this. But this is, this is something that very few people understand today, that in the history of the church, history of, of our, as we go back into the early apostolic fathers in the second and third century, it is very clear that they held to a position which we now call creationism. This is not creationism in relation to Genesis 1. This is that God specifically creates each soul and imparts that to biological life. Now, over time, the question came up whether God did that at conception or whether He did that at birth or sometime in between. And it's fairly clear from a number of lines of evidence in the Scripture that the parameters of human life are birth and death. It is from the womb, not in the womb. In the Greek, it's ekkoilea. In the Hebrew, it is me batten, from the womb, from the exit of the womb, not babetan or... Uh, in Koilea. So it's clear that the Bible makes the parameters of human existence over and over again birth and death. It never makes the parameters. You can't find a single passage that makes the parameters of human existence conception and death. It's always birth and death. In about the late 2nd century, early 3rd century, you had a man by the name of Tertullian. Now, we've studied Tertullian before. He's the man who, who gave us the word Trinity. He coined that word Trinitas to describe the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But he also gave us a little heresy called Traducianism. 
Now, most people don't know this about Tertullian, but Tertullian was a materialist. He believed that the human soul was material, not immaterial. Because it was material, therefore, Tertullian taught that the soul was passed on through procreation. It was passed on through the um, fertilization of the egg cell with the sperm. So the soul was being physical, was passed on physically. Well, of course, that would mean that from conception on that you would have full human life in the womb. But traditionism was even declared a heresy by no one less than Thomas Aquinas, who is one of the greatest theologians of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, Thomas Aquinas, when he discusses this whole issue, is firmly a creationist, and he states that it is heresy to claim that the soul is transmitted in the semen. So, just a few other facts related to this whole subject is up until about 50 years ago, uh, the majority of Protestant theologians were creationists. And it's only been within the last generation for a variety of different reasons, none of which have to do with exegesis, that they have shifted over to a traditionist position. But there's a very rich heritage, theological heritage, among Orthodox theologians of creationism. That it is at birth that God uh, imparts the soul to uh, biological life and is at birth that you have full human life. Now, the other interesting thing is, uh, just to bring this full circle, is that the early church always felt that biological life within the womb, apart from any, um, any tragedy that might take place, would eventually culminate in full human life. And therefore, they always felt that it was important to protect the biological life within the womb unless God were to override the process and, um, and end the pregnancy. So the early church always took a position of creationism, but they always felt like because God was involved with biological life, Psalm 139, that man must treat it honorably. So human life is imputed our, uh, human life, when the soul life is imputed to biological life, we have the development of full human life at birth. Now, this is the process by which the human race continues. The, the, the biological life is transmitted through procreation. But soul life comes directly from God at the point of physical birth. Now, this provides the background. At the point of birth, you have soul life imputed to biological life, and you have human life. At that same instant, you have in biological life the transmission of the sin nature. And so, God imputes... Adam's original sin to the sin nature, which is transmitted biologically and is contained within the genetic cell structure of the human body. And so at the point of physical birth, simultaneously with the imputation of soul life to biological life, you have the imputation of Adam's original sin to the sin nature. And this is the basis for our condemnation. The basis for our condemnation as believers is not personal sin. It's not the sins that you commit on a day-to-day basis. It is Adam's original sin which was imputed to you before you ever made a sinful decision. So it's very important to understand this because it's led to a lot of confusion among a lot of believers over the century who have the arrogance to think that it is their personal sins, their particular individual expressions of sin that are the cause of their condemnation. And so when their sins are not as bad as somebody else's sins, they feel real proud of themselves and they start judging other people. And that's really the foundation for why one Christian starts judging somebody else. So in order to understand some of these concepts, we're going to break down the whole subject of Adam's original sin so that we can see what the real condemnation basis is. It's Adam's original sin. It's not because you're any better than anybody else or your personal sins caused God to do that. 
um, because the scriptures are very clear that our personal sins are imputed to Christ at the cross. And that's the basis of our salvation. Our personal sins are not imputed to us. It is Adam's original sin that's imputed to us that is the basis of our salvation. So, we'll begin this this morning and finish it up next week. Point number one. At the same instant that soul life is imputed to biological life, the second imputation occurs, which is Adam's original sin to the sin nature. Point number two. This is a real imputation because there is an affinity, a correspondence between the two. And that correspondence lies in the fact that it was Adam's original sin. When he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was his original sin that immediately generated a sin nature in Adam. So that shows this relationship of affinity and correspondence between Adam's original sin and the corrupt nature that resided in him. So that means that this is a real imputation. The result of this, point three, is that we are born physically alive but spiritually dead. Soul life is imputed to biological life, which results in human life. We are born physically alive, but at the same time, Adam's original sin is imputed to the sin nature, and we are born spiritually dead. So we write it this way. Adam's original sin plus a sin nature equals spiritual death. Point number five is an objection. Someone might say, well... That just really doesn't seem very fair. Adam's the one who blew it by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I didn't have anything to do with making that decision. So what does that have to do with me? That doesn't seem like it's very fair of God to punish me for Adam's sin. And the answer lies in two solutions. Theologians have divided this into two categories. The first is what's called a federal relationship with Adam, and the second is a seminal relationship with Adam. The biblical basis for the federal relationship with Adam is Romans 5, 12, and following. Adam was our representative in the garden. Just as you elect a representative to go to Washington and make decisions, sometimes he makes decisions and votes for things that you do not agree with. He votes for taxes that you do not want to pay, and yet you're still responsible for paying those taxes. And far too many people have been sending representatives to Washington who vote for taxes, and we ought to be firing them and lowering our taxes. One of the things that impresses me more and more as I study history is that there is a direct correlation between the level of taxation and the level of freedom. And our founding fathers understood that when they raised the battle cry against England and said taxation without representation was wrong. And it was the increase increase of taxation by uh, England that reduced freedom. You have less money, so you have less options. You can't invest. You can't provide for your future. So if you want to destroy freedom, if you want to control and dominate people, if you want to exercise tyranny, then what you do is you increase taxation. And we see that far too often in our society. It's their hidden taxes and their overt taxes. And what we need to be doing if we're concerned at all about maintaining freedoms in this country is firing any elected official, I don't care what party he belongs to, who is voting for an increase in taxation. The way to gain freedom is to lower taxes, to free up money, to free up investment so that there can be uh, economic growth. And that's what has to happen today, especially in light of what's happened economically in the stock market in the last week, is we need to lower interest rates, we need to lower taxes so that we can free up investment money so that we can return this country to an even keel economically or we're going to have a real tragedy on our hands. But that's all a different story, so we need to get back to the doctrine of imputation. Federal, Adam is our federal head, Romans chapter 5, but we are also seminally or physically in Adam, and the basis for this is found in Hebrews 7.9. Hebrews 7.9, the subject is the superiority of Christ's 
priesthood, which is after the order of Melchizedek, to the Levitical priesthood. And in Hebrews 7, 9, and 10, the writer of Hebrews draws this analogy and says, and, so to speak, through Abraham, now Abraham is the one who lived at the same time as Melchizedek, he says, and Levi was the great-great-great-grandson of Abraham. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What we have is Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, after he defeated the five armies that came in from the east. Abraham's great-great-grandson is Levi. Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then um, Jacob had 12 sons, Levi's one of them, so I think that would make great-grandson or great-great-grandson. Levi's not even born yet. He's a couple hundred years away or 150 years away. And Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews says, but Levi was in the loins. He was seminally present. He was in the loins of Abraham, and so Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. And because Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, and the inferior pays tithes to the superior, the Melchizedekian priesthood, therefore, must be superior to the Levitical priesthood. That's the argument in Hebrews chapter 7. And so from that we see that even though Levi wasn't even alive, he is seminally present and responsible for the actions of Abraham towards Melchizedek. And so every human being is seminally present in Adam as the physical progenitor of the race so that in Adam we made that same decision. Adam sinned and we all went along with it both in terms of his federal headship and in terms of our seminal relationship to Adam. So that then becomes the basis for our condemnation. And we'll develop that more fully when we come back next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look in detail at how you have, your justice has put together a magnificent salvation. That we understand that as man was perfect in the garden and your love was his point of contact, that love could not secure that relationship, provide eternal security, and that as a result of sin, your justice provided a perfect eternal solution to the sin problem. And we understand that on the basis of the imputation of Adam's original sin to us, the imputation of our sins to Christ and his righteousness to us. And that forms the basis of our justification. That it can't be on the basis of anything that we do, for our works could never measure up to such an incredible plan as the one that is laid out in the Scriptures. So, Father, help us to understand the depth and the breadth of our salvation and how your justice works together in all of this and how it is expressed to us in grace so that all that is necessary for our salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. The merit does not lie in us. The merit lies in Jesus Christ who died as the Lamb of God without spot or blemish on the cross on our behalf. Now, Father, we pray these things, that God the Holy Spirit would help us to remember them, to understand them, and to apply them in our thinking. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.